Hi, it's Steve Albrecht, and this is the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining me for this half hour. This podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. You can always get more information about Steve Hargadon and me at library20.com. So my topic for this half hour is a conversation about space and distance and also body language and reading body language in a safe and effective way and perhaps not misinterpreting body language. Is, is this person mad at me? Is our, our thought process the answer is probably yes. And we're really good at interpreting body language because we've been doing it since birth, right? As, a, as an infant, you are always looking at your parents or other caregivers, nurses, doctors, people that are babysitting you, whatever, for how they are seeing you in terms of eye contact and their posture and their gestures, how close they are to you. And we're good at interpreting anger and agreement and satisfaction and happiness and joy and contempt and all kinds of other things based on reading people's faces. So I want to start off by talking about space. And one of the things in the library world that we consider is what is the difference between our interaction somebody at a social space distance, that's typically five to seven feet, or what we would say arm's length plus a little bit more, versus personal space where we allow somebody to come into our closer area that's, that's one to three feet away from us. Uh, that may be a colleague or a coworker or a friend or somebody that you uh, know from the patron experience that you trust. They come over and say something to you closely. They don't want to broadcast it to everybody or they want to share some aside or joke or comment with you and, and you let them close, come closer to you. And then we have intimate space. Intimate space is that space which is only allowed or should only be allowed with you with loved ones, people you really care and, 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 and care about in terms of loved ones, friends, and also pets, right? I have intimate space with my dogs. They're always licking my face and, and my cats are smashing their heads against mine when they want food and they want attention. They're always rubbing themselves against my, my side of my head. And so when we think about intimate space, it is for people that you know and love and trust that they're coming really, really close to your body. Social space is the normal area where we want people to be. And here's one of the issues that I've seen a lot in my work in healthcare violence and healthcare violence prevention, which is a lot of rage and anger and threats and assaults and physical contact with nursing staff or hospital staff, especially ER staff, or medical providers like doctors, it comes at when we they are working with people in that intimate space, meaning there's an invasiveness to the medical procedure. They're poking somebody in the ear or the eye or the nose or other body parts, or they're, they're inflicting what this person believes to be pain. Uh, there's some kind of pressure pain um, situation where there's some kind of device or, or you know, catheter or something like that is being inserted, where this is an intimate space area. Unfortunately, people in healthcare have to work in intimate space. That's just required. And so there are people that do not respond well to that type of intrusion, even though it has a normal, reasonable, you know, healthcare-related um, process attached to it. So when you think about space violators, people that come into your personal space, they may do it intentionally. They may do it accidentally. Um, they may do it with an aggression or a bulliness or, or a kind of a, um, uh, an over-the-top uh, intrusion attached to it. Other times they just do it accidentally because maybe it's a cultural thing for them. Closeness means trust. Or they just don't recognize based on not having good social skills or reading the social situation that too close is too close. It's okay to take back the space that you need. 
it's okay to step back and go, I need a little bit of room. I'm sorry. What were you saying? Go ahead. And you're not apologizing for stepping back. You're simply saying, uh, what were you saying? Uh, go ahead again. I just need a little bit of room. Let's start this conversation over again is what you're trying to say to this person by giving me a little bit of space. Most of my experience in terms of the safety and security world has been with intentional space violators, people who, who try to bully or intimidate or come forward and violate your space and come too close to you, even make physical contact with you. Sometimes they'll, they'll turn that into, it was your fault you bumped into them, or somehow they'll turn it into um, that you in, intentionally enraged them or made them angry, and therefore it, it's, it's okay for them to do that, and of course it is not. So I like space around myself. I have a good spatial intelligence. I don't bump into people. Uh, people bump into me, airports and, and crowded streets and you know concerts and places like that, ball games. But I don't bump into other people because I'm always paying attention to my space. And so when I think about the people around you, you have a, uh, a sense of, of how much you want to tolerate in terms of who comes close to you and how close they get to you and what, what the previous relationship is. If any, you know, they're strangers to you or you have a passing acquaintance with them and you feel trustworthy to them or their colleagues or their friends or their family members or people that you know and love and trust. And so when I look at the space issue, it is really connected especially to reading body language and what we're going to talk about here, both positively and negatively, because the signals that people give off when they want to approach you in a positive way are way different than the signals that they give off when they want to approach you and violate your space or come into your space in a negative way. So we'll look at that. So I talk about proxemics, proximity, closeness, right? We all have what's, what, what psychologists and people that study this stuff called a proximic bubble or a proximic uh, space around us, which is how much we will tolerate. It could be a cultural thing, could be an age thing, could be a, um, a sense of bad experiences where people have come too close to you, and so you're a little bit more cautious about space. I find in my own personal experience that introverts and extroverts perhaps have a little bit difference in terms of, of space and what they allow. My extrovert friends are kind of move closer. They, they are enthusiastic. They want to talk to you about stuff. My introvert friends tend to stay back, and I'm in the introvert category, so I have a tendency to stay back until I get the right social signals from somebody to come forward. So you may get a sense of dealing with a patron that they're highly extroverted, they're enthusiastic, they have this, this excitement about talking to you about something. That's just their personality. They don't mean anything by it. Uh, we have other situations where we can look at another driver of body language is eye contact. And so the same issue with space being a cultural thing in some cultures, especially Western culture, eye contact is, is typically um, respectful and seen as positive. Uh, in Eastern cultures, sometimes eye contact, and this varies, eye contact is a respectful thing. So looking away from a, an authority figure, a teacher, a doctor, maybe somebody in the library who's a, in a leadership position or is perceived as a boss, uh, they don't make eye contact necessarily as a respect thing. And then people in Western cultures say, well, why isn't this person making eye contact? It's just respectful. So there can be a disconnect by, by gender, by, by um, you know, sort of geography, by the demographics of people, age, things like that in terms of eye contact. And we find that eye contact is also a precursor to threats and violence where the person may have this what's called mad dogging where they stare you know, in an intimidating way. Or they have, in the worst case scenario, and we'll talk a little bit about this for, for body language, they have target acquisition. And so I've seen that a lot in my, my security career where somebody will look at the part of the body they want to strike, your face, your body, something like that, and they have this target fixation with their eyes. 
Um, there's a lot of discussion and language and reports and studies and anecdotal stuff and, and Twitter stories and things about body language. And so it's not safe or fair or reasonable to make sweeping generalizations about body language and say, well, every time this patron crosses his or her arms, he's disgusted or she's angry or they're, they're closed off or they're furious about something. Or you and I could say, because we do it too, we're cold or my back hurts. I frequently stand my, with my arms folded because my low back hurts and sometimes it kind of helps my posture. So I've been looking at some articles about body language on Psychology Today at their blog, psychologytoday.com. And, and what you know, some of the researchers and people who study this stuff say is, is body language is contextual. And so folded arms could mean cold and folded arms could mean disappointed and folded arms could mean I don't know what to do with my arms. Uh, people put their hands in certain gestures that, that may look comforting and may look frightening or maybe it's just because they don't know what to do with their hands, right? They'll put them behind their back, in front of their, um, their, their waist, in their pockets. Sometimes people, and you can see this a lot, not only in terms of, of culturally, but also extrovert versus introvert, some people get excited and talk with their hands. And they'll wave their hands around. And I've seen situations where someone's accidentally struck somebody, not meaning to, because they got too close. So I'm always cognizant of the fact that when I'm around strangers, and I'm not sure who I'm dealing with, that I give them enough space that if they decide to wave their arms around in a, in a gesture where they're trying to be emphatic or, or make some sort of point, um, not that they want to harm me, but, but it's, it's still space and distance where I say I don't want to get accidentally struck. So think about the things that we've been talking about, eye contact, space, distance, proxemics. We also have proxemic barriers, and I've talked about this many times in my programs, which is if you feel uncomfortable in an encounter with somebody, they're too aggressive. They're too emotionally round up, uh, round up about the particular issue that you're talking with them about. They're, they're, they're frightening. They're bullying. Or they seem to exhibit some mental health issues. Or they seem out of touch with reality. Or they seem sort of wild-eyed and not in control where the little brain is doing the thinking for them rather than the big brain. The little brain is the primitive brain and the big brain is the full brain is that we use proxemic barriers. And then there's lots of them in the library. And it doesn't mean that you are afraid of people and that you dive behind something for cover, but you say, maybe in this situation I stay at the counter and this person's across the counter from me. Maybe I don't move out from the counter or I don't get up from my chair behind the counter until it seems like the emotional temperature is down. Or that I stand across a table and talk to somebody. Or I stand uh, across another piece of library furniture. Or you know, I lean forward on a cart just in sort of a casual gesture, but the cart is a proximate divider, a proximate space creator between me and the other person. You can use lots of things in the library. Furniture, counters, desks, chairs, tables, half shelves, carts, things like that to put between you and somebody who seems irrational or out of control. Again, this is not a fearful thing, it's a safety thing. It's a sense of reading the person in the situation saying what is the best approach in terms of human dynamics, human communication, where I feel more comfortable about this person. And if they're a little bit out of control, I feel a little bit better with space and distance. If they're reasonable and their tone is reasonable and their body language matches their tone, and we'll talk about the difference between sort of low tones and screaming, because sometimes people that have low tones are more scary than people that are screaming. The person that says, okay, I'm not done with this. You haven't seen the last of me, and then walks out. That's a little disturbing, isn't it? as opposed to the person rants and raves about, you know, you didn't help them or I pay your salary or some of the things that eccentric or untitled patrons might say. So looking at body language can be 
sort of uh, in an area where we have sweeping generalizations about things where you go, well, you know, studies say or this report has suggested that when people do this, this, and this, it means this. Not necessarily so. Again, I've been looking at these uh, psychologytoday.com blogs about this with people that study this stuff, and they say it's all about context and it's all about interpretation and it's all about, about gender or demographics or age or cultural differences, and it's also about sometimes making a sweeping generalization that's not actually true or making a value judgment about someone's behavior that's not actually true. Now, let's switch over to the other side of that, which is if your intuition says, this person seems mad at me, stick with your intuition. If your intuition says, this person seems reasonable, then your intuition is probably correct because we know danger signals, we can hear them in the person's tone, we can read that person's face, we can read their eyes, we can read their, their movements as being aggressive or passive or supportive or friendly or unfriendly. And so think about how you perceive somebody when you're talking to them where you're having a routine, normal, casual conversation. For the most part, it is positive and non-threatening from start to finish. You see smiles and you smile back. You see them nod in agreement when you help them or make a point or clarify something for them or answer a question where they nod in agreement. That's what what folks do when they communicate. They nod on both sides once it sounds like things are going in the way that they anticipate a positive solution. Uh, They may, um, uh, in some situations, um, have a hand gesture where their palms are down or at their sides or open and kind of up. They may be holding something, their phone or paperwork or whatever, but their hands are not in any kind of threatening posture. They're not fists, obviously, or they're not behind their back in kind of an aggressive way where they're, they're flexing their fists. Their tone tends to be even and even neutral, meaning that it's not high or low. It's not, it's not over the top. It's just positive, normal tone and level of conversation that, that people have. It's not so low that it's disturbing, and it's not so high that they're screaming. They make careful eye contact, and you make careful eye contact. What's what we call hooking. Hooking is where you look at the person's eyes, and then maybe you look away quickly, or you look at their eyes for a little bit, or you focus on some other part of their face, and then you look away. You don't stare at them. Um, we, we see this uh, concept called mad dogging, where someone says, what are you looking at? What are you staring at? You know, what do you want? Which is they raise the emotional temperature when they believe the other person is staring at them too hard too long. This is kind of an animal kingdom thing. We see this with, with animals in the, in the wild, dogs and cats at my house, where sometimes I can see too much staring is going to lead to a big, a big furry mix-up with these, my dogs and cats mix it up with each other, or, or cat to cat and dog to dog because they're angry about food or treats or space or petting or whatever it happens to be. So when you look at eye contact as a, a kind of a volume knob, you can say, I can use careful eye contact with people that are upset. <clears throat> I can use careful eye contact with people who um, seem to be really frustrated or irritated in a way that seems connected and supported, but it's not staring at them. And it doesn't make them feel intimidated by that, that process, so that hooking eye contact. The other thing we see in people that are reasonable and, and cooperative and calm is calm breathing. And calm breathing is not huffing and puffing as, you know, like a, like a train engine. And it's not red-faced and angry because they're, they're short of breath. And it's not huffing and puffing in such a loud, angry way that you hear them breathing. <clears throat> they, you know, they, they become hoarse with their breathing because it's so, it's so rapid and, and distressed. Their breathing is calm. Their movements in their breathing is, is reasonable. 
Uh, the other thing I see with people that are that are reasonable is they stand still. They don't shift from foot to foot. They don't they don't rant and walk around the room. They don't move around and, and flex their fist or do anything that, that suggests agitation. When you see people that are that are comfortable in their own skin and comfortable talking to you, they stand there. They nod. They they nod in a way that suggests that you are making sense to them and they're trying to make sense to you. And by standing still, they don't create sort of a distracting posture where they're moving around in a way that, that seems like they're not in control of their emotions. They're, they're right there with you. The volume of their voice is reasonable. The value of their voice is appropriate for the situation. They're not being too loud in a, in a quiet space. They're not being too quiet in a kind of a creepy way. It's reasonable. And then the other part of that, which, which is a big piece for me, is we see early and continued cooperation. They say, okay, I will step over here with you, or okay, thanks for pointing out where this is, I'll go get it, or thanks for getting it for me. We see cooperation. And oftentimes I talk in my programs about something which is kind of a complex psychological uh, communication tool, but it's easy when I explain it, it's negotiated behavioral agreements. A negotiated behavioral agreement between two people is, I can do something positive for you, will you do something positive for me? If I can help you with that information, will that, will that satisfy you and will you be okay with it? Most people are like, yeah. If I can ask you to, do, to wait for me while I do my job and you are okay with that, then that's another part of a negotiated behavioral agreement. We also use negotiated behavioral agreements in situations where the person is doing something you don't want them to do. <clears throat> I will say, I can't help you if you curse at me. So what I'm saying is stop cursing and I can help, it you, help you. If you continue to curse, I'm going to disengage. And obviously, I can't help you if you threaten me, and I won't. I'm going to disengage immediately up to and including getting help or calling the PD or the sheriff if it's a threatening situation. But sometimes I think it's valuable to put people on notice about their behavior and conduct and body language and tone and language in situations where you have to set boundaries. I can't help you if you ask me those kind of personal questions. I won't. I have to go step over and help somebody else or do, go do another part of my job. And so that we set boundaries. And sometimes we see things like, like you know, sarcastic behavior, um, kind of veiled threatening behavior, you know, you better look out or you better watch out or you haven't seen the last of me or whatever it is, with this sense of a negotiated behavioral agreement is like, you know, I, I can't help you if you talk that way to me. I, I can't, I, you can't do that if you want to stay here, as you well know, is one of my favorite phrases. When you say to somebody, you can't do that if you want to stay here, what I'm saying is make a choice. So people hate being told what to do and you have to do this with some tact and some discretion. Keep in mind, we're not ordering people to behave. We're not ordering people to, to toe the line in terms of their conduct. We're suggesting to them that it is a choice that they can make as to how we help them, if at all, if they continue their behavior as negative or threatening or cursing at you or being highly uncooperative or saying rude or racial or sexually harassing things. You can't, you can't help them. You won't help them. And I'm big on boundaries. So... It's interesting to me how sometimes people can be relatively cooperative coming in and sometimes they don't hear what they want to hear or they don't get service that they expect from you fast or accurate or efficient or you know, there's some delay which is not your fault but just happens and then they take it out on you in terms of, of being angry and they move from a yes person into a maybe person or from a maybe person, maybe I will cooperate, maybe I won't, into a no person, I will not cooperate. And so it's interesting to me to think about how we may say things inadvertently or accidentally or sometimes 
uh, intentionally because we're frustrated that turns somebody into a yes person into a maybe or no pe- person right away based on what they've heard. You know, when you say, I'm not going to explain it to you again, sir, in that sort of sarcastic, you know, condescending way, you can flip somebody from a yes person into a no person right away. One of the problems with cops and law enforcement and, and is that sometimes they will turn people who are relatively cooperative into a no person based on how they treat them, but also the person who is a no person by the time the cops get there. So I've seen, of course, both sides of that coin, which is the cops don't use good communication skills. They're, they're not, they're not uh, service-oriented. They're impolite. They're rude. They're, they're domineering, whatever it happens to be. And they turn the person who is mostly cooperative into a no person, and then it's, it's a big conflict. Or by the time the cops get there, this person has shifted from being relatively cooperative to being highly uncooperative, and then it's a big, a big problem. It's a confrontational mess. When I think about de-escalation, there's, there's a lot of discussion about it being two sides of the coin, and it's really a, a, an important point, which is you cannot use good verbal de-escalation. You cannot use good physical de-escalation with, with a, a, a fair and, and balanced appropriate body language that's that's you know assertive but not aggressive and that's protective and 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 in a way that sends a message that you're there to help but not to be trampled all over if the other person doesn't want to cooperate and i think that's a a missing piece in the de-escalation discussion which is if this person does not want to calm down without you saying calm down of course if this person doesn't want to follow our behavioral or policies or code of conduct there's nothing we can do I mean, sometimes we, we are in a situation where it's like, hello, sheriff, hello, PD. I mean, this person is, is highly over the top in their behavior, and there's nothing we can do despite our best efforts to get them to comply or to calm down without saying those magic words, calm down, of course. So I think of de- de-escalation as a 50-50 process, maybe 60-40 or 80-20 with you, right? You're, you're doing most of the heavy lifting and the work in terms of, the, of getting a compliance or asking for compliance. But this person at some point has to agree. And at some point, this person has to bring down their tone. And at some point, this person has to cooperate or it just gets out of control. So I think about, if we go back to body language for a second, I think about cooperation, early cooperation, as a good sign. Sir, could I ask for your paperwork? Sir, could I see your library card? Sir, could you tell me um, uh, when you came in yesterday with your son what happened so I can, I can figure out you know, what, what may have took place so I can figure out what we need to do differently or talk to my boss or whatever happens to be? When people are cooperative, when they provide information, when they tell you things upon request, when they offer you paperwork or whatever they're holding, cards, whatever, uh, upon request, early cooperation is a good thing. <clears throat> I have said in my training programs that sometimes, maybe in a counterintuitive way, I will shake hands with somebody who is upset. Hi, I'm Steve from the library. What was your name, sir? Oh, okay. Th- thanks, for, thanks for telling me. I, I just wanted to introduce myself. And maybe I'll shake hands with somebody, even though my intuition... In, in, in your intuition, that situation would say, absolutely not, I'm not going to touch this person or not going to offer my hand. That's okay. But I've done that sometimes to say, this is what reasonable professional people do. This is what adults do in a professional adult environment. We shake hands or we sit down. And if your intuition says, don't sit down with this person or don't shake hands, that's fine with me. But if you think maybe it works, and then here's the flip side of that is if they don't want to sit down, I'm not going to do it or they're not going to shake hands, they refuse. That's a big warning sign, isn't it? So speaking of warning signs, let's talk about negative body language. Body language where there's a, perhaps a hostile intent, perhaps a violent in- intent, or even a, <clears throat> a threatening intent. I look at people's faces and I say, this guy has 
All the color has drained out of his face, in which case he's pale and angry and licking his lips, and he's hoarse. That's not great. I see frowning. Um, his eye contact is either direct and menacing, <clears throat> or it is darting, looking away all the time, or, or it is target-focused on me. That's not what I want. Looking at some part of my body that he wants to strike. Um, I see a sudden red face. This is a person that's holding their breath. This is a person who is, has a, a flushed face, sometimes from shame or embarrassment or anxiety or stress. Their face gets suddenly red, and it, it becomes a, a telltale sign. Um, their eyes widen. Sometimes their eyes may go like a snake and become hooded, or their eyes widen because they're super upset, super excited, and then they widen their eyes because they, they, they widen the muscles around their eyes in sort of this emphatic look, right? You may see them frowning. You may see them grimace. You may see them grind their teeth. You may see them lick their lips. They, you may see sweat appear on their body, which on their, on their face or forehead, because their, their emotions and hormones and adrenaline has kicked into high gear, and that's not a great sign. You may see them flex their fists, which is an awful sign. That's a big danger sign. You may see them cross or uncross their arms several times. This crossing and uncrossing of their arms is a way to um, figure out what to do with all their nervous energy, and it's not a great sign. You may see them shift from foot to foot or even move around, move around from one side of the counter or over towards your side to in, in shorten that space and become more confrontational, which is not a good sign either. You may see them finger point. And I've, I'm not seeing a lot of people flip somebody off, except in road rage situations, but you may see that person finger point. Worst case scenario, that person makes physical contact with your chest or some part of your body with his or her finger. That's not great. You may see the person um, pointing at in their finger at, at some part of the library which they're upset about other people or some part of the facility and they're doing it in such an emphatic way that you can tell they're furious. You may see this person start to swallow a lot. You may see this person start to use sudden swearing whereas before you've never seen them do that but in a highly enraged or intense state of anger they switch over to cursing. Cursing is a big warning sign for violence. You may see this person rise up and try to look larger I mean, this is one of the most animal-oriented, wild kingdom, primitive behaviors that we have, which is I'm going to try to look larger in your eyes to be more intimidating. I'll go up on my toes. I'll rise up. I may stand up from where I'm sitting if it's a thing and try to loom over you. They may be on the verge of tears, and this is common, men and women, when somebody is so frustrated, so angry, so stressed, so anxious, so fearful inside about the situation that they're on the verge of tears. And it's, that's really a big warning sign for lashing out as well because they're at kind of a last resort where they feel like crying, and which you know obviously men don't like to do, or women, but really men don't like to do in a public way in front of other people. So then we look at the really high risk behavioral issues for body language, like pounding on the counter or pounding on a table or shouting, not, not just being angry with a loud tone, but, but just screaming at people. They may kick objects, kick, kick furniture, kick, kick chairs, things like that. Uh, they move from really loud to really quiet, which is a concern for me. They go from, from kind of howling behavior to hunting behavior. We may see this targeted focus, which is they look at some part of your body that they want to hurt, but also then we see something that is called the thousand-yard stare. The thousand-yard stare is this person sort of blanks out, 
And in that point, sometimes a couple of bad things are happening. One is the primitive brain is taking over, the little brain, the forebrain or the lizard brain is taking over, or they have made a decision to lash out with physical violence. So when we see these things, these negative, hostile, threatening type of body language um, um, behaviors, movement, tone, space, use of their body and fists and pounding and kicking and things like that. These are huge warning signs. Don't misread these. So if your intuition says, I need to disengage, get out of here, that's what you need to do. I need to get a colleague over here to watch my back or for us to, to kind of double up on our protection of each other, that's what you need to do. If you say, I need to go to a safe place and call the PD or security if we have that function, that's what you need to do. Because sometimes when we look at these situations in the aftermath, you go, boy, I missed some of the signs. I thought the guy was just a little bit upset and turns out he was furious. Uh, I missed some of the signs. Turns out this woman was, was highly agitated and so much so that she used violence to make her point and I missed some of the warning signs. Or more accurately, you saw the warning signs but we do something as human beings which is we rationalize irrational behavior. We say stuff like, well, he can't be that mad or she's not that upset really. Maybe I'm misinterpreting and it turns out you're not misinterpreting. So think about what we have talked about many times in my training programs, which is the, the importance and value of intuition. And so your intuition tells you what somebody's all about. Uh, animals use it all the time. They're drinking at the, at the pond in the forest and they hear crunching in the grass behind them. They don't keep drinking. They go, what's that? I either need to get out of here or prepare to defend myself. So when I look at my own dogs and my cats, right, they hear some kind of sound outside, their ears perk up, they start barking or, or they run away or they run towards what it is as a big pack, I have six of them, and they stare at the door and start barking and carrying on, and I go, ah, it's probably nothing, and I go back to watching TV or reading my book. I don't do that. I get up and I go see what the issue is. Now, it could be nothing, it could be something, but when you get early signals about body language to your own intuition, or you are working with a colleague <clears throat> who wants to disengage because they are afraid, and that's reasonable as well, because everybody is not afraid of the same thing, and we don't all have to be afraid in order to call the PD or security or the sheriff or get some more help. You know, one or two signs and symptoms and behaviors that a reasonable person would interpret as bad body language and potentially threatening or dangerous or violent response by this person is enough. We don't need a perfect, you know, 100 out of 100 on the test score for to say this is a concern for us. So all this goes back to what do we do? One thing that we do is we don't agitate people in the service experience. We try not to agitate patrons. Now, sometimes we have to tell them bad news. Sometimes we have to tell them no. Sometimes if you're still collecting fines at your library, you have bad news there. You can't check these books out and pay your fines. Um, sometimes it's just the fact that they have come into our situation already angry at somebody else or something. And you know this as well as me. A lot of people are carrying around a lot of baggage and traumas and exposures to bad things that made them fearful and anxious and stressed before they even get to you. And there are lots of situations in life where you become that straw that breaks the camel's back in terms of their furiousness or their anger. And what we're really focusing on is how do we get the best service experiences, the best service um, you know, conversations we can have with everybody, knowing that we can't always solve everybody's problem, but how we treat people positively, empathically, patiently, good listening skills, being a professional listener, using space and distance to keep yourself safe, and staying out of that face-to-face -face confrontational posture, maybe being around a proximic barrier behind it, or not necessarily face-to-face, toe-to-toe, but kind of off at, a, at an offset angle when you're talking to this person. Having your hands in a, in a kind of a, a positive fingers pointed up, 
uh, gesture, you know, kind of, I, I hear you, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, kind of a, not a push away gesture, but you could do that if you need to, rather than having your arms folded or an, your arms in your pockets or your arms behind your back. All these things are back to the idea of how you have a, a stressful or high risk or challenging conversation with somebody who seems out of control or, or quite angry and is moving through a range of emotions from anger to sadness to rage and how we treat people, and I learned this in my workplace violence work for 30 years I've been doing this now, is trying to avoid a situation where the person goes away feeling shamed or embarrassed and goes away from the situation, the conversation with us feeling like they lost and we won because there's an obvious sense that the person, you know, um, on the receiving end say, well, you know, basically I, I won this conversation. That's not what we want to do. And that also how we treat people positively, empathically, patiently, even when they're impatient, with empathy, even though they don't, or they're not empathetic back to us, um, carefully, and by being as polite and supportive and neutral as possible, is that we are trying to avoid the biggest risk factor for workplace violence and people lashing out that I've seen in my career, which is the desire for revenge. The desire for revenge says, you shame me, you hurt me, you embarrass me in front of others, you did something that, that made me feel less of a person and I want to lash out because I feel, you know, the, the primitive part of my brain is telling me what to do and that says lash out in a way that says I need to pay you back for making me feel bad. How we avoid that is professional service and professional listening skills and empathy and patience even when people are not. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. I am Steve Albrecht. I am uh, thankful and grateful to the support and help of my producer, Steve Harganon. And for more information about Steve Harganon and the work that I do for Library 2.0, see www.library20.com.